I think it's counterintuitive in a way to think about post-war reforms and especially Stalinism as a time for upward mobility, but that is what actually happened. You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Hello and welcome to the Transformative Podcast with me, Rosamond Johnston, and we are joined today by my dear colleague and prize-winning author, Agata Zushak. Today we're going to be discussing your most recent of multiple books, Agata, which is Limiting Privilege, Upward Mobility Within Higher Education in Socialist Poland. And this just came out at the end of last year with Purdue University Press. So, first of all, congratulations. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Rosie. That's uh, very kind to uh, welcome everyone. And I hope to discuss my work with you. Well, let's get straight to it. You have said in the introduction to this book that the heroes or the protagonists of it are those who achieved upward social mobility within socialist Poland. So can you tell me a little bit about who they were and their life stories? I was focused mainly on first-generation students. And uh, I think it's counterintuitive in a way to think about post-war reforms and especially Stalinism as a time for upward mobility, but that is what actually happened. And it depends, of course, on the estimates, but apparently a majority of Polish society experienced whatever defined upward mobility, which often meant just getting out of physical work instead of working, for example, in a, in a village. However, um, these definitions are extremely flexible, so we need to focus on the, on the detail. I was mainly interested in peasant and working class students who were encouraged to enroll to the university thanks to post-war press campaign, reforms, lots of tools that were imp implemented like initial year or preliminary course. There were tools precisely designed to encourage people to enroll, put in a way possibility to study at the university or technical university into their horizon of expectation. And this change was, was profound. That was lots of effort on the political side, but also kind of a social rethinking of what university is and who can be part of it. To what extent was reform of university a question of universities reforming themselves? Or to what extent did external factors like the press, like the government, have to do it? For sure, in the first post-war year, it was kind of a critical mass of change. There's lots of support on the side of society towards the reform, like agrarian reform, educational reform. The, my case study is University of Łódź, uh, which is in the, an industrial city. Uh, it was the biggest city with uh, new borders of Poland for this particular moment when Warsaw was still in ruin. And at that time, lots of leftist, liberal, or whatever you would call them, and what they called themselves at the time, um, lots of these leftist intellectuals came to Łódź trying to rebuild university, trying to rethink it anew. So at that particular point, there was lots of uh, grassroots initiatives. For example, this preliminary course was actually designed by the professors in Łódź, firstly in the attempt to help students whose educational paths were affected by the war, not exactly because of the class consciousness, but later it was taken, let's say, by the state as a solution implemented nationwide to help exactly peasant and working class students to enroll to the universities. So it's really difficult to answer this question straight. I think in general, my thinking about social change is that 
politically designed, implemented reforms is just a part of, of reality. And it's always reinterpreted, rearticulated, depending on, on different let's say, layers of a state, both administration of the university, students themselves. This is like much more paradoxical, fluid, multi-layered reality that we, we want to face as a researchers to understand the past. There was this whole new infrastructure created for these first-generation students who were perhaps leaving peasant backgrounds and moving into the intelligentsia, but they still faced, even at this period of peak reform, some big obstacles. Can you talk a little bit about what they were? We have actually great insight to what was happening at the universities thanks to sociologists of the time. Maybe not during the Stalinization when sociology was banned, but just in the mid-50s already there were research projects aiming at understanding what was happening at the universities. And the results were, you know, heartbreaking because the people who were achieving so much, taking enormous effort to to move upward in the social ladder, experienced later on other universities' daily classism. It occurred to be very difficult for them to find themselves and to feel at home at the university. Furthermore, uh, statistic data also proves that dropouts were much more common. They also occupied worse position in a planned economy that many of the jobs positions were inscribed to you when you graduated. So on many, many levels, we can see that not only class, but also gender intersect and shape those educational paths and not in favor of peasant and working class people and especially not in favor of peasant and working class women. Nonetheless, do you find tactics by which some individuals can overcome some of these obstacles that you documented there? For sure, still, the critical mass was moving upward in the social ladder. But the change was happening maybe mainly at vocational schools, technical schools and technical universities. So in a way, my case, which is university with all the humanities and social sciences, was kind of the cherry on a cake, the most difficult, most elitist institution that, that could be imagined. And that's why this is exactly where the limits of the support mobility were, were set. So I researched those who became professors at that time and with all of the, let's say, frame or structure that was prepared for them. By this, I mean the press campaign that was encouraging peasant and working class students to enroll, the initial year or preliminary course, the whole political frame for that, even the leftist and progressive uh, faculty that was at the place. Still, we can see that very, very few make it to become a professor, mainly of peasant origin, and the price to pay was being socialized to more traditional interwar academia and kind of university and university community that would be called traditional or intelligentsia guarded, let's say. That's from where the title of the book came. Limiting privileges, actually a clash of privileges, the privilege by state-guaranteed support for working class and peasant students, which in a way interferes and clashes with a more traditional uh, privilege of intelligentsia, uh, protecting what university is, how they do understand academia. My work is also highly inspired by Bourdieu's work on social reproduction, and this is exactly work of hysteresis, when two factors of social change uh, limit each other. So uh, you touched upon it there. I wanted to ask more about one of these key findings, which is some of those who are the sort of real success stories of making it into, I suppose, the humanities teaching intelligentsia are also perhaps some of the staunchest traditionalists kind of slamming the door shut behind them in some ways. So how do you explain this? So I guess uh, it's rather the condition of becoming a professor, not the kind of uh, conscious shift. Those who 
believed in the values of socialist modernization would end up somewhere else. Maybe technical universities, for sure, uh, also political-driven um, careers. But in case of university and in case of um, becoming a professor, if you would not get socialized to this more traditional set of values, you just would not make it to becoming a professor. So this is rather how how the social reproduction, how the social change is possible and how so, those educational paths being shaped by the social structure and political uh, influence. So in this case, we can see that, for example, for working class families, what was important was mainly avoiding physical work, being independent financially and supporting your family as early as possible. And it was not possible by continuing education or higher uh, level. It was rather vocational schools, technical schools, sometimes even two years of very quick uh, courses designed to become skilled worker uh, in a no time al almost. In comparison, university took almost five years. Even if there was a reform that created something what we know nowadays, three plus two scheme of, of studying, still it was much more risky path and peasant and working class student would be not so eager to take it. On the other hand, intel intelligentsia families, uh, for them not getting a diploma would be a degradation. So the stakes were very different for the students who enrolled. We've discussed there that the, there were limits to the reform of the higher education system, even during these Stalinist years that are seen as the sort of most radically upheaval-filled years in this region. Um, and very often when we talk about things that didn't work out perhaps as those in the Politburo had planned, there's a narrative of dysfunction that, you know, the communist system was not working well enough to make it happen. Do you see the partial to failed attempts at reforming the university to be a case of communist dysfunction? Or what would you attribute it to? I think that focus on party agency and political aspect of, of a social change actually is like the most common stance, the co most common approach towards the higher education research in state socialism. And it produced narratives about captive university or seduced students, which I'm actually trying to revise and make it more complicated in a way. Polish communists were, were not as potent as uh, many see them nowadays. This is one aspect, but another is I'm a sociologist by training. I'm more interested in what's happening on the ground, when the power hits the ground and how much it would be authoritarian and powerful, which was not so much a case of Polish communists. Uh, still, this is not the aspect that um, is most interesting for me. Also, designing this research I was mostly focused on how we can understand what was happening during that time. So political reforms were only one aspect, another intellectual debate. But this is still a very narrow insight to what was happening uh, with the society. So therefore, we have this press campaign, which was uh, designed to uh, reshape um, social imaginary. There was also lots of very good uh, sociological research, which I'm I cannot repeat it like too many times. I'm really indebted into good quality sociological research that gives us uh, insight to, to how society works. I mean, qualitative and quantitative research, very diverse. And thanks to these materials, we can, we can at least try to understand what was happening. And finally, the biographical materials from the time and also gathered by me many decades after, after this experiment. All this actually retells the story from a completely different angle. And political, let's say, aspect for me is not the one that is most important. We've been discussing this very much in the context of socialist Poland, right? So to what extent do you think that the research that you have done 
is very specific to socialist Poland and the scope there was from a social mobility in socialist Poland? Or do you think there are also things that can tell us about the design and implementation of programs such as affirmative action, for example, in the United States today? So, of course, this is a very like in-depth qualitative case study um, that is driven from the in-depth analysis of texts, um, biographies and so on. But I do believe that it gives us an insight and can tell us more about, in general, designing social change and making it effective uh, and make us sensitive to how also difficult it is and what might be responsive of a, of a more stubborn, reluctant, in a way, a social structure. And even with this very positive, in a way, conditions of post-war change, war losses that already make it impossible to get back to the interwar reality, political tensions, the whole scale of reforms, this press campaign, and, and all the conditions that would make us think that social change is irreversible and it's impossible not to achieve at least something. We can see that there were pockets of, let's say, resilience for good and for bad. And I think each reform is designed to reshape uh, social structure face such a, such a problems. I guess in every study we have this very particular uh, and rooted aspect. But I do believe that it gives us more insight to to how implementing social change uh, looks like. This book has been out now only for a short period, but there has been a chance for people to learn about it and read it. So I wanted to ask how it's being received and specifically if you're finding it's being received in different ways on both sides of the Atlantic in Poland and in the US where you've recently been presenting your work quite extensively. So um, I guess for uh, European or Eastern European case, what is most interesting is this local clash with uh, intelligentsia and the state socialism as, as a project. Um, you can call it socialist modernization or this political influ- influence. While I think for a wider audience or English speaking audience, the question of first generational students and their struggles is much more important. And exactly how it's possible to open the elite for non-elite people, uh, how we can design social change. This is uh, one aspect I I, I see very clearly that that divides interest. Um, And another is, I I was actually surprised that uh, during the the many meetings uh, in the US, people were somehow appreciating that I'm using a class as a sociological category, which might be not so so popular anymore or, or was not never popular uh, considering history uh, studies. This is not uh, not my uh, conclusion, just, just thinking about the questions or comments I got during the meetings, which was a big surprise for me. Okay, Agata Zushek, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Rosie, that was a pleasure. <laughs> and see us or listen to us next time for another edition of the Transformative Podcast. <laughs>